Our New Testament reading is from Mark's Gospel and chapter 3. Mark's Gospel and chapter 3. It's on page 838 in the Pew Bibles, and we're reading from verse 13 uh, to 21. Mark chapter 3, and reading from verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This evening we want to think of Jesus appointing the, the twelve apostles. One theologian, R. W. Dale, he discusses the divinity of Jesus Christ and his argument is that the, the most uh, persuasive argument for the divinity of Christ is the pervasiveness of the divinity of Christ within the gospel accounts and the New Testament. He says we can pick out particular verses to argue for Christ's deity, but he says a stronger argument is to recognize that it appears in so many places throughout the New Testament. The metaphor that he uses is of salt in the sea. He says that when the salt recedes, there are salt crystals left on the beach, which evidence that there is salt in the sea. But he says a, a more persuasive argument of the saltiness of seawater is that there's salt in every bucket of seawater. And he applies this to thinking of the divinity of Jesus Christ. He says we can select particular verses and analyze them. John 1, 1, the word was God. But he says a, a, a more pervasive argument is that the, the divinity of Christ appears constantly throughout the New Testament writings about Jesus. And his argument is illustrated in this place that we have come to this evening in our studies of Mark. 
Here is Jesus selecting and appointing the 12 apostles and underpinning all that Jesus does here. It's his authority, his divinity, his lordship, who he is. We are given a hint of the importance of what will be recorded in this paragraph by the opening words of verse 13. He went up on the mountain. And this phrase occurs in Mark's gospel from time to time, chapter 9, chapter 13, chapter 16. And every occasion when this phrase occurs, it is followed by something momentous. Some important event in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. The last one, of course, being his ascension into heaven from the mountain on which he went. And so here uh, we have this indication that something big is going to happen in Jesus' ministry. This elevated geographical location is indicating and symbolizing the elevated nature of the action that is going to take place by the Lord Jesus. The location probably emphasizes that it was a quiet place, a, a secluded place that was being required. Not every one of us <coughs> could climb a mountain. And so Jesus going there naturally left the great crowds that we were thinking of earlier. And just a few people would be able to climb this mountain. A church in Tennessee has put a, a plaque on one particular mountain and the definite article, it lies before mountain here. It was a well-known mountain and they thought it was the Horns of Hatton. And if you ever get to Palestine and climb the Horns of Hatton, you will find the plaque from the Church of God in Tennessee with verse 13 of chapter 3 written on it, on that mountain. And so perhaps we have a, a smaller crowd of men and women on this well-known mountain in Galilee. And it's going to be a, an important gathering and an, a momentous occasion that is about to happen in this event. And we know that it will be the appointing of the twelve apostles. We want to think of this uh, this evening uh, and what it means for us in our lives at this time. And there's, there's three dominant aspects of this incredible paragraph that we really should be preaching for about four weeks on. It's so loaded. It's so dense. It's so relevant and comforting and challenging to our lives. But we think and summarize this, this momentous occasion in three dimensions. And the first is the sovereignty of Jesus' calling. The sovereignty of Jesus' calling the twelve. And right throughout 
this, this paragraph about Jesus appointing the 12 apostles, there is this note that, that is clearly heard that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is sovereign. The very nature that he goes about this, look at verse 13. He called to him those whom he desired, those whom he wanted, those whom he willed, those whom he wished, those whom he elected, those whom he chose. Here's the sovereignty of Jesus. He didn't ask the crowds to pick. He didn't ask for volunteers, but sovereignly, from his side, he chooses the twelve. And this was rare. Rabbis were selected, as we've said before, by their pupils, as students select their universities in this country. But this is Christ. This is the Son of God. And in this big occasion, this incredible moment, he takes the initiative and out of the crowds, the smaller crowds of men and women gathered on this mountain, he calls whom he wants and it betrays his sovereignty. He is Lord. He is God. A second aspect of his sovereignty is in the brackets that we have here throughout this paragraph there are three places where brackets are used and each time is to do with Jesus naming something or someone. He named them apostles in the first brackets. He gave him the name Peter in the second brackets, verse 16. He called them sons of thunder in verse 17. And again, naming or calling throughout the Bible is connected to a superior addressing an inferior. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they named the animals. I was talking to, to William uh, Dalrymple and, and his, his wife's in, in the hospital and they're expecting a child. And we were talking on Friday just about that moment, that moment when the parents name their baby and what a, a big occasion it is and, and, and all the, the repercussions of it. And here is Jesus and his sovereignty, his lordship, his superior place, and he is naming the 12 apostles. He is Lord. He is sovereign. He is son of God. He designates them apostles, that is, ambassadors of his, direct representatives whom he sends out with his message to do his work. He changes Simon's name to Peter, meaning a rock, indicating the importance of Peter's ministry. He will be there at Pentecost. He will be the one who is sent to Cornelius the beginning of the mission to the Gentiles. He will have such a critical place in the New Testament church. He is given the name rock or stone. And Jesus calls these two brothers who were a bit fiery in their temperament, the sons of thunder. 
Such is his sovereignty and authority. And a third aspect of his sovereignty is the number of the the apostles. He appoints 12, not 11, not 13, but 12. And in doing this, Jesus is making a statement. We've been studying together the, the conflict stories in Jesus' ministry and this clash with the scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders over the tradition of the elders. There's no way that Jesus and them will ever work together. And now Jesus breaks away from them and begins his new society. And he makes this statement that his society is the true successor of the 12 tribes in the Old Testament. Such is his sovereignty and dignity and authority. Shane Ward, Warren, and there's some cricket interests here. I'm not among them, and I am totally out of my depths talking about cricket and its attributes. Uh, <coughs> I'm sure it does have some. Uh, so Shane Warren then, he was a tennis player at 17, a gifted tennis player. Uh, And then Shane Ward, he got a scholarship for Aussie Rules Football and an 18-month contract which came to an end and and wasn't renewed. Uh, And he, he writes that he was wondering what he should do. And then he says, cricket found me. And here are these men, fishermen tax collectors, nationalists. Jesus comes in his authority and he calls them to be his apostles. As we try to apply this into our life, there is that, that narrow application, isn't there, of Jesus calling men today into the ministry, breaking into their life as they sit at their desk or like Amos as they farm in their fields and he calls them and they wrestle with it and they fight against it but it it won't go away like John Knox in in the 16th century and, and they're dragged into giving their life to serve Christ in that way. But in a more general way, Jesus continues by his spirit to call people into his kingdom. Primarily through the the preaching of his word, he calls on men and women everywhere, the Bible says, to repent and to believe the gospel. And in his sovereignty and in his grace, he sends his spirit to accompany that general call, to make it a special call in their hearts and minds and unite them to Jesus Christ. And he has called us together as a congregation to love, to serve, to worship. Some of those whom he calls are shy and say very little. 
Some of those whom he calls are bold and express their opinions. But there's a congregation called together by Jesus Christ. We're called to love and serve and honor him. In Ballyclare, there was a, a man who started attending. He had drug problems, he had drink problems, and, and the congregation welcomed him, cared for him, loved him. The sovereignty of Jesus' call. But secondly, there is the substance of Jesus' call. The substance of Jesus' call in 14b and verse 15. James Edwards argues that the call of Jesus addresses three aspects of our experience. The verbal, the relational, and the behavioral. And it does address those aspects of our experience. It addresses the aspect of our relational experience. He called them that they might be with him. Jesus called these men that they would live with him and listen to him and learn from him and watch him and follow him and imbibe his teaching and his ways. He calls them that they might be with him. And again, this was something unusual. No Jewish rabbi would ever encourage their pupils to follow their example to learn from their behavior. Their call was to learn the Torah, to focus on God's law and on God's requirements. But Jesus calls those apostles and calls us that we might be with him. For in Jesus we have the one who has imbibed the Torah and lives out the Torah perfectly. And our call is to be with him and learn from him and follow him. The call is, is also to address their verbal experience that he might send them forth to preach. This was a dominant element in Jesus' ministry. Within Galilee, he was performing miracles, yes, but his dominant ministry was preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And Jesus now is commissioning these 12 apostles that they will follow his dominant ministry and they also will be preachers of the gospel of the kingdom. That addresses the third experience the behavioral experience and have authority to cast out demons. Our character is defined not only by what we stand for, but also by what we stand against. And here was one experience which these men were to adopt and express that they were to stand against the powers of darkness and evil which were dominant 
in Galilee at that time. The substance of Jesus' call. It addresses their verbal experience, their relational experience, their behavioral experience. It is a a rounded ministry that he calls them to and asks them to fulfill. And while all of us are not called to preach and while none of us are called to cast out demons, we are all called to be with Christ. This is the essence of discipleship, isn't it? And throughout Mark's gospel, he keeps bringing us back to discipleship. This is another theme within his writings that we are to become followers of this one who is exalted Lord and Son of God. And we are to be with him. We are to learn from him. We are to assimilate his ways and priorities and principles. We are to be with him. With him in our thoughts and what we think about. With him in our words and and how we form our sentences. With him in our actions and the priorities that we have. With him as we lay the dining room table. With him as we sit down to do the homeworks with our children. With him in our interaction with one another, living with Jesus, imbibing Jesus, drinking in the spirit of Jesus, is to characterize us as followers and disciples of our Lord and Savior. The sovereignty of his call. The substance of his call. And thirdly, the subjects of his call. And in verses 16 to 19, we have one of the four lists in the New Testament of the 12 disciples. Perhaps you have learned this in Sabbath school and you know their names. Perhaps you have pondered over each of these names and followed out through the Gospels where they are mentioned. But is it a rich and a a deep and a varied and an intriguing group of men that Jesus pulls together? There are many facets to it. And I just mentioned seven. (laughs) Favorite apostles. Of the four lists, the names of the apostles are never mentioned in the same order, but they all start with the same first four names Peter, James, John, Andre. Favorite apostles. And in various places in Mark, as as we'll see in our studies, God willing, there are times when these four men are privileged to witness things which the other eight are not allowed to see. And it indicates that among the twelve, there were four apostles 
who were special to Jesus. And I do like Spurgeon's distinction. It's helped me over the years as, as a minister and as a Christian. He said, you don't have to like everybody, but you have to love them. And that distinction between loving and, and liking is legitimate. And within the congregation, you will have members whom you're closer to, members whom you really like. But you're still to love everyone. Favorite apostles, family apostles. One of the striking features of this group of men is that half of them were brothers. James and John were brothers. Peter and Andrew were brothers. And two of the men are called the sons of Levi. Matthew and uh, the sons of Alphaeus, Levi and James, the son of Alphaeus. There were three sets of brothers. Half of the apostles were brothers. And sometimes in congregations, people get concerned that members of session or members of the deacon board are related. People should be elected not on the basis of their family connections, but on the basis of their qualification. And Jesus chose these men, though they were brothers, to be his apostles. Fanatical apostles. Simon, the zealot, the zealots were a group within Judaism who desired the overthrow of the Romans in a very strong and violent way. And Simon had belonged to that group. He strongly desired the, the overthrow of this foreign power within Galilee. And yet, Jesus chose this man. Their origins went back into the Old Testament to Phineas, who was very zealous for the Lord, and they lifted their name from Phineas, and they in their time were zealots. Jesus chose him and educated him in that spiritual kingdom that would last forever. There were ferocious apostles. James and John, the sons of thunder. So named because, as we learn from the Gospels, of their short temper, of their quick desire for God's judgment to come down on any who oppose their ways or their methods. And yet, Jesus, knowing their temperament, chose these men. Faceless 
apostles. What can you tell me about Bartholomew? What can you tell me about Thomas or James the son of Alphaeus or Thaddeus or Simon the zealot? There's not a lot that we discover about these men and church tradition has tried to fill us in on their exploits after the, the gospel writers have ended. But it's not in the scriptures. And we are left with names in this elite group of the followers of Jesus about whom we know so little. But isn't this Jesus' way? He's not interested in great names. He's not interested in a celebrity culture. He chooses people who will humbly and effectively serve him in his church. Flawed apostles. What we do know about these apostles, it's not great, is it? About Thomas doubting about Peter denying his Lord, about Philip asking to see God and Jesus telling him that he'd seen God for the past three years, about all of them forsaking their Lord. Jesus called these men who were imperfect, prone to failure, characterized by actions for which they were rebuked. And this is Christ's church. This is Christ's leaders. And today, the elders and minister is not perfect. We'll not care at times as we should. We'll not speak humbly as we ought to on occasions. We'll not be as thoughtful as we ought to be at times. Christ's leaders are flawed, are defective. In church history, one of those outstanding leaders was a man called Edward Irving. And he had what his church, the Free Church of Scotland, believed was a defective view of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Edward Irving promoted the opinion that Jesus Christ took on himself our sinful humanity, a view which, which we would not hold, but which he advocated and argued that for Jesus Christ to be tempted, he had to have adopted our sinful humanity. He died young. And Robert Murray McShane wrote about Edward Irving that he loved his Savior so much but wronged him so deeply. And that can be said of these apostles and that can be said of, of all Christians as we seek to follow our Lord and Savior. We do love him but we do fail him. And lastly, the, the false apostle. Every list ends with Judas Iscariot. He gave a credible profession. 
He was elected by Jesus and there was no objection to his election on this mountain and his appointment to apostleship. But it was time that revealed his true nature. And it is time in our age that reveals the true position of a person. They come before session. They give a credible profession. But it's time that reveals whether they truly belong to Christ and persevere through thick and thin with their Lord and with their Savior. The sovereignty of Jesus' call. Breaking into the lives of these individuals and summoning them to leave their calling and follow him in that superior calling. The substance of Jesus' calling, that they might be with him first of all and imbibe his spirit and then go out to minister. The subjects of his calling, a wide-ranging group of men, People have analysed, worn, and we'll read about this probably all this week, placed him among the greats within the cricketing world. What was it there? The leg spinner, is that, is that the right kind of thing that he was good at? Able to, to trick out the, the, the gifted batsmen in, in those test matches. But the fascinating thing about Warren, which adds to, to the incredible giftedness uh, which characterized him, was his, his humble beginnings. He writes that before he, his cricket career took off, he was delivering beds and pizzas on a Friday night and working in a jewelry factory. Then it all changed for him. And here are these men, fishermen, tax gatherers, nationalists. Jesus comes to their life. He transforms them and calls them after himself. And this is the grace of Christ. This is him reaching out into the lives of the undeserving. This is what we're thinking of today and for which we give him thanks. He is a saviour of grace. A few weeks ago I, I stood in a church building when John Coulter accepted the call to, to, to Drumbog and an elder from Drumbog was saying to me, I can't believe it. How? Would this man come to our small country congregation? And, and we talked in that moment of our Savior and the grace he has to reach out to those who don't deserve that grace. As we reflect on communion today and on this calling of the apostles and the sovereignty of the call, and the substance of the call and the subjects of the call, surely you and I are determined more than ever.
to devote ourselves to this Savior. To follow him more. To commit ourselves to his ways, to his kingdom, to his people more. And maybe for someone for the first time to commit yourself to this Savior, Jesus Christ.